Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. If you'd like to support the show, want a shout out on my next episode, or want an inside scoop on my upcoming guests, consider joining my Patreon. You can find the link in my link tree or by heading to patreon.com slash hn, the number 2, DM. There are different tiers for all budget sizes and some interesting perks you can find there too. Next, I wanted to take a second to welcome new listeners. Last week, Shelly Mazzanobel of Wizards of the Coast invited me on Dragon Talk, the official D&D podcast to chat about some tips and tricks for running games. I've had a ton of new listeners coming in as a result and wanted to say thanks for giving How Not to DM a shot, and I'm glad you're here. If you get a second, tweet at me or something and introduce yourself. Also, coincidentally, the main guest of the episode was Johnny Stanton, who you'll remember was my Season 2 kickoff guest. How cool is that? There's a link to the episode in my link tree if you haven't had a chance to check it out yet. Anyway, I wanted to thank Shelly and the producers Lisa and Ryan for having me on. It was a blast. And lastly, as usual, 10% of the money I bring in this month from ads and supporters like you will be donated to Encircle, a nonprofit organization with the mission to bring the family and community together to enable LGBTQ youth to thrive. And now on to this episode's guest announcement. Nathan and the rest of the Reckless Attack podcast burst onto the scene mid-2021 and have been gaining momentum since with their amazing audio quality and unique story. Nathan spent many hours thinking about the show, how he wanted it to sound, how he wanted to market it, and more before the first episode was ever published. We talk about what it takes to launch a quality show and how to market your work without selling yourself short. Enjoy. So I was, I don't actually remember when I first heard about Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop role-playing games. It was just one of those things that kind of existed in culture and I was vaguely aware of it, but don't, didn't have that kind of moment where, oh, I stumbled upon a monster manual or something and my imagination was caught. But definitely what started me down my road of interest and of playing was podcasts for sure. I also don't remember how I came across my first D&D podcast or anything like that. I think it was the original Acquisitions Incorporated podcast back in fourth edition run by Chris Perkins with the Penny Arcade crew. And I just I couldn't get enough of it. Like that was all I did. I had long commutes in college. I listened to it all the time because I had tons of free time, as you do in college. And then my first job out of college was a lot of commuting. So I got to consume even more podcast content. I just devoured, devoured podcasts of D&D. And I tried tons. I listened to hundreds, hundreds of hours of things every single day, every single week. I'd have it playing while I was working, while I was driving, while I was cleaning, all that kind of stuff. And naturally, that kind of fed into some mania. But the thing, <laughs> the other thing that, that really tipped it for me was in college, I was a journalism, well, I took journalism classes. I wasn't technically a journalism major. I graduated one credit short of having a journalism minor. Long story, not important. I took a bunch of journalism classes and was a journalist. I got an assignment that was, hey, go into a subculture. Could be a music scene, could be a whatever. 
ingrain yourself into it and get to know it and learn the people who are there and talk to them and learn about their hobby or their thing that they're doing or their subculture and write a story about it. And I, being the nerd that I am, decided, hey, now's the time where I can have an excuse to go play Dungeons and Dragons for class credit. And so I went down to the local, the friendly local gaming store and managed to, you know, on one of the D&D nights. And I just kind of introduced myself and pulled up a chair and just watched people play D&D and talked to them about it and came back another week and played and wrote some things. And I got really interested. That's actually where I met someone who is on Reckless Attack now, interestingly. But as soon as I got that first real experience of here's not just what it sounds like and what it, you know, what the experience kind of feels like as a listener, but here's what it feels like to play. I was done. <laughs> That's all I wanted. It checked all the boxes for me. And I, you know, slowly started peer pressuring friends and and roommates and whatever into letting me run games for them. That's a common origin story, playing for your first time and being hooked. There's very few people who I've talked to on the show and <laughs> off the show who weren't immediately like, I need to do this as much as possible. Yes, exactly. It's it's one of those things where if it doesn't work for you, it'll take a while to warm up and maybe it just isn't for you. But if it is for you, there's a good chance that it's just going to get you right away. That And that that's why I love playing with new players, even though I haven't played with a new player in a long time. But I live for that moment where they realize when you say the words, you can do anything you want. When they realize what that really means is magic, is so cool, is so fun, and just their eyes widen, and this whole new world opens up to them, and their whole new list of possibilities is fabulous. Yeah, yeah. So do you remember the first game you ran, and do you remember kind of what the story was like, or who was there, and how it worked out? Yeah, I have two memorable ones. My first one was I was back from college just after this kind of first toe dip. And I had a couple of close friends who I was in touch with and we were just hanging out. I think we were spending the night at my friend's house and it was like one in the morning or something like that. And we somehow got on the subject of D&D and both friends were equally as like nerdy and just kind of needed the permission to be like, I would like to do that, please. And (laughs) literally just like found pre-generated character sheets and whatever one-shot dungeon crawly module for fourth edition that we could find again for free at 1.30 in the morning. And we literally just played through it until like 4 a.m. or something like that. And I, I played, you know, I both played a character and was sort of the DM just because we didn't have many people and we didn't know any better. And yeah, and we just had a great time. And we were, of course, just like unbelievably tired, but it was already just very interesting and very cool. And then this, the first proper game that I DM'd, quote unquote, I roped in my roommates, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, and her brother into a game. And my room, one of my roommates had played before, a couple of my other roommates by that point had already kind of like become aware of D&D through podcasts and through whatever. So it wasn't a huge push. And I found this really, really cool one shot. It was like exploring a hag, the hag's lair that was inside of like a chapel. It was very flavorful. There was all kind of 
gross details of eyeballs floating in jars and all that kind of stuff. But what they don't tell you or what they didn't tell you about one shots is that they're not actually always one session. (laughs) Yeah. Especially if you're all new and there's all sorts of chicanery going on and everyone's (laughs) learning and all that kind of stuff. That is a great word. Yes. (laughs) And I, not knowing any better, just kept playing and we kept going and we played until like one or two or later, maybe in the morning and everyone was exhausted. Everyone had a nice time, but it was like a catastrophic failure (laughs) immediately of just, oh no, everyone hated that ultimately. And I luckily talked them back to the table, but it was a, a nice early example of like, ah, I have to play the game that the table needs and not the game as it is written on pieces of paper or the game as it is in my head. Yeah, that's a great lesson. Speaking of, let's transition right into the worst mistakes question because that, that doesn't qualify as a mistake, I don't think, but... <laughs> Just ignorance. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it, ignorance. So as far as mistakes that you feel like you've made that people could learn from, what are some examples of either early or recent mistakes and they can be specific things or like mm-hmm. things that you do consistently that you feel like people could learn from and improve their own games. Yeah, so there are there are a couple of kind of big themes that I have I have found myself falling into before and now try to be very cognizant of and still have to work on a lot. First, assuming that I knew what my players wanted Mm. And then being overprotective about information accordingly. I still feel very precious about my ideas. I want my players to experience that big reveal at the table, right? And feel the feelings that their characters are feeling of being, oh my God, what is this? Or that's amazing or that's horrifying. But sometimes in guarding those secrets, you can lose sight of, will my players actually like this? And is this actually what they're feeling or what they're wanting today or what their experience at the table should be? And so I've tried to get a little better at bridging the gap between making sure that there's still lots of room for surprises and for twists and turns and all that kind of stuff, but also being much clearer with my players, especially the Reckless Attack crew, because we're recording but making sure that we're all on the same page and making sure I'm saying like, okay, here's kind of what I think the session is going to look like. You're probably going to get this kind of an interaction and you'll get to do this and blah, blah, blah. And that I think, even though that goes against my instincts, specific instincts has been very, very helpful. And I think very appreciated from everyone. And you know, it's all about expectation setting, right? And then the Uh other thing is just assuming that my players don't like the game which is, <laughs> I think, something every DM struggles with sometimes, right? And and trying to make sure that, obviously, I'm checking in with them regularly to say, hey, are you enjoying the game? But also of, you know, not letting no, no feedback be a sign of them not liking it or them not enjoying themselves, you know? And this is me giving you all the DMs in the world permission to, A, ask their players if they're having fun, and B, assume to an extent that you're doing a good job and that you're, you know, as long as you're working with them, it's going. Yeah. I feel like there's a couple of things I've seen where people are like, Hey, if they show up every week, they're probably having fun. Like don't, you know, like 
you know, or you're probably doing a good job, I guess, is the line. Yeah, if they're showing up every week, you're probably doing a good job. So it is something that helps to tell yourself, but it also helps when your players tell you that too. So it's it's always nice. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and, and again, that's, of course, couched with your players should have a lot of opportunities to not just give you compliments, but give you feedback. Yes. And, and, you know, you should be fostering an environment, and this goes for the players too, but everyone should be in an environment where they feel safe and comfortable to talk about, hey, it would re- actually, I've really been jonesing for combat and we haven't had a combat in a bit. And so if you could just throw me a combat, that would be great. Like just being able to say, this is what I need. Can you provide it for me in the context of a wider group? That's, that's really what it's yeah, about. Yeah, it is. I also liked that you said it, it kind of goes against your instincts, but you should try to talk to the players about what they're interested in doing and, and kind of what yeah. their expectations are. Because like you said, as a DM, like initially, I feel like when you start running games, you're like, ooh, I can't wait to think of all of these things to throw at them and they won't have any idea. And, you know, you feel like yeah. you're supposed to surprise them and throw gotchas at them and stuff. But it turns out that it is good to do that and it is good to kind of like keep them on their toes. But it's also good to figure out what they want to do and let them do it. So it's a good thing to mix both of those. Yeah. And there's still lots of surprise to be found in that, you know, and it'd be like, okay, cool. You're telling me you want a combat or something. Well, you don't know what that combat's going to be. And I know that, you know, XYZ is off limits, but that means I can do all of these other things. And I will still surprise you while giving you what you need and, and making sure that you feel comfortable with the direction that this session and that things are mm-hmm. going mm-hmm. and leaving room to adjust accordingly. Yes. Always got to have that wiggle room. All right. So in your time running games for your friends and for the podcast, what are some of your favorite memories of improvisation mm-hmm. or combat or role-playing from your groups? And what are some things that you feel like DMs could take away from these moments that really display the magic that is only possible through tabletop role-playing games. We, well, you know, I would be remiss in not saying if that's the right way, is that a double negative? I don't know, but we'll just go with it. We have had a lot of already really great moments on the podcast, but I've been playing with this group of people pre-podcast for many years. And really what sticks out to me and my kind of go-to, my go-to memory of what is possible with tabletop role-playing when you have great players and you guys have fostered a great environment and are all on kind of the same page is the ending of the campaign right before Reckless Attack. So we had played together for a long time, had some great characters, and decided instead of ending that campaign, we're going to start working on our podcast. You know, we'll get that going. And we put that on pause and after a little bit, we're like, okay, well, clearly this is still going on. We will not be starting to record our podcast. So in the meantime, do you want to finish the campaign? And, you know, long story short, it was all set up to be this big necromancer fight. He was the, the dad of one of the players who was like an abusive tyrant and was looking to create an undead army and blah, 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 and drown a whole city of people to raise them and become a lich. It was like, you know, classic end game, high emotion, high personal ties type ending. And I had it all set up where there's going to be all these, you know, crazy encounters one after the other. They're going to travel to this 
crazy demiplane like inside of a lich's phylactery before he turned into a lich and defeat him there and like all that kind of stuff. And they ended up killing him in a courtyard. And <laughs> that was, you know, totally a totally weird in a lot of ways, but totally interesting because they then had to flee the city and because he was in charge. You know, he was a king, yeah. basically. And no one had the context for like, hey, here's why we were killing him. We have all the evidence, but like most people don't know that or there's guards everywhere. And it was not the heroic ending that these characters deserved or that we had really been building towards or that was really kind of the tone of a lot of the hmm. campaign. I love to wear run heroic games. I love the good guys winning. That's what gets me going. And so I was feeling really weird narrating that, you know, and like talking about that and setting the stage. And then the players with a couple of NPCs in tow set up camp outside of the city. And, you know, I described the scene and set the mood and then just let them go. And they just talked for like 30 minutes. I didn't say a word. I intentionally shut up. <laughs> I, I, I talk a lot. And I made myself not. And they just talked. There was inter-party conflict leading up to the big boss fight. There was, you know, and they were all now very different people who had different lives, who had different connections in the world, pulling them different directions. And they had just won the fight of their lives, the fight of, you know, for, for the world, or at least for the continent. And they were huddled, instead of being having parades, they were huddled around a campfire and they were at odds with each other. And steadily, they role-played through it. And they were able to, in character and out of character, come to terms with, hey, it's complicated. There's a lot of complicated feelings right now, but we did it. We finished it. We did the right thing. We persevered. We did it together. And that was such a wonderful moment as a DM where I didn't do anything. And the players bought into the fiction of that they had created and that we had created so much that they could just go and find their own ending to a years-long campaign. And that is just the coolest thing ever. I didn't, couldn't have changed a minute of it. And that was not necessarily the lesson, but an underscoring of the lesson of at a point you can hopefully just trust your players and just let them run with it and put them in the situation and let them find their own meaning, find their own solutions. And if you have the right, the right atmosphere and the right players, magic can happen and they'll just take it from there. Yeah. That that's really incredible. It's good that you have the instincts to step back and just let it happen. I know that a lot of people would be tempted to like start narrating each of their ends or, or, you know, narrating, kind of the the end of the story there but instead you let them do it and yeah that's that's really cool that's a really cool story and i'm sure it was a very rewarding moment for you yeah it was incredible and you know it's the same folks we're making the podcast with and they're they're just the best you know and they've it did not take long for them to settle into a space where they could just do that and where if i gave them enough of a heads up and set the right tone that they would just go off on their own. And it's made 
my D&D experience and the podcast experience immeasurably mm-hmm. richer. And it has made me a better DM of reinforcing that like, no, look, they, they can do it. They get it. Yeah. Awesome. All right. As far as influences for you on your style of running games, mm-hmm. you mentioned the first D&D podcast you started listening to was Acquisitions Incorporated with Chris Perkins. You know, do you consider him a big influence on your your running games? And then what other sources have you kind of looked to for inspiration or advice? I mean, first, I really I think I've really learned a lot from so from anyone that I've I've listened to or played with. I think I I try to be very intentional of not, you know, note taking on a meta level, but trying to pick up on things that they did differently or twists that I didn't see coming or ways that they did voices or whatever. So I definitely try to be always learning. Chris Perkins was huge. You know, the way that he, a designer of the game, would just roll with things and roll with the nonsense that his players are coming up with. And yes, and, and give them choices, but do so in a way that kept things moving and played the game that they wanted to play was really formative for me. The other kind of big early podcasts that I really loved was Critical Hit, which was a 4E podcast. Rodrigo Lopez was the DM there. He had just this beautiful structure to all of his plots. And he had this, this incredible way of making everything memorable. Like every monster had an evocative description, not a distracting evocative, but you know, flavorful. Every encounter was big set piece things, or it felt like it. And every location was this memorable, incredible place. And that's definitely the, the bar I try to hit. I know you've talked a lot about Matthew Colville on here. I consumed him. I think I've watched every video maybe several times at this point that he's put on YouTube just as a kind of way to have a different mindset and way of approaching the game and be a little bit more cerebral in my preparation and in my at-the-table mindset. And I guess finally, there is another podcast that is still going on. They just started a season two after like 10 years of season one called Greetings Adventurers, which was Drunks and Dragons. Oh, okay. And they were were a really wonderful podcast. And the reason that they're so wonderful is because they, much like we try to capture, have the spirit of friends who are just playing at the table and playing more or less the game that they want to be playing and having fun and not trying to play to an audience necessarily. but just, you know, it, it felt like you were at the table with them. And that's always what I loved about them and what I try to do at Reckless Attack, certainly, too. Yeah, I, f- I feel like the shows that I have liked the most either are just so high production value that it's like a show that you'd watch on TV yeah, right. or that are really that kind of at the table feeling. It's kind of those two things that, that draw me into shows personally. So I definitely get that. Yeah. And it's interesting, too much high production value or like audio drama ones really don't work for me. And I totally get why they work for other people. Totally makes sense. There's a lot of, you know, dice rolling and whatever that I I see gets totally tedious for people. But for me, the capturing of the feeling of the game is what gets it, you know, that there's an authenticity there that a lot of heavily, heavily edited or audio drama type products don't quite yeah. capture for me in the same way that just like the joy of being at a table with your friends captures for a lot of the other podcasts. Totally, that totally. Do. 
This episode of How Not to DM is brought to you by Eclectic Clay. Have you killed the ancient dragon? Escaped the trap-filled dungeon? Just hit level 20? Celebrate with a bespoke player character sculpture from Eclectic Clay. Nina, Syracuse's hometown clay hero, will work one-on-one with you to bring your ideas to colorful, three-dimensional life. Visit www.eclecticclay.com to get started. And Sister Businesses, PodcastEditors.online and VideoEditors.online. Are you a podcaster or video content creator who loves making awesome content but wishes you spent less time editing and more time doing the things you love? Check out podcasteditors.online or videoeditors.online to see their awesome rates and editing offerings. Buy a few hours a la carte or purchase bulk hours for larger projects. Let them tackle the boring stuff so you can get back to making more awesome content. Check out the links in the episode notes for both podcasters and video creators. And now, let's return to the show, starting up with a brand new minigame for Season 2. This week on Quickfire Chaos, Nathan and I are going to use some D100 tables and random dice rolls to pick out an NPC and a problem they want to solve to roleplay. When you're ready, first one is your voice description. Okay, uh, 77 is what I got. Okay, 77 is overexplains everything in excruciating detail. Oh, so it's just me playing me. Good. <laughs> Very good for an audio medium as well. Okay, mm-hmm. next one is personality. 18. 18 is cursed. A Ooh. person who has befallen a prayer for evil or misfortune placed under a spell or born into evil circumstance and suffers for it. Hmm. That, mm, that's okay. interesting. Okay. okay. A cursed person who explains things too much. All right. It seems like they could be tied even. Yeah. Your job. 11. 11 is <laughs> portrait painter. Ooh, can I, can I get a, a Dorian Gray from the audience? Yeah, that's, this is what it sounds like to me. Cool. Very cool. Okay. Now the city quest, and I may amend it just slightly to make it make sense, but let's see. Ooh. Yeah, that's a seven. Okay, so there is a rival portrait painter, and you are trying to hire us to ruin their business to promote yours. Okay. <laughs> it was I a tailor. I, I, think I, I think I have it already, actually. So yeah, I'll just show up, knock on your door, I'll be a wizard, and I will be asking you what job it is like i'll say you know someone in town told me to come to the portrait painter who's got some job that needs done and then you'll go into what it is and how you want us to do it and like the weird reasons why and stuff too good sir i understand that there is a task that needs performing uh what can we do for you the spindly individual ushers you into their shop. And as soon as you kind of come through, you see that there are paintings everywhere. All of them finished, all of them hyper detailed. 
but almost grotesquely hyper-detailed to the point where moles are prevalent. There are even stranger kind of inhuman level of cheekbones, that sort of thing. But none of them monstrous, just all strange. And this individual, who you know to be Bartholomew of Bartholomew's Busts, who is a painter here in the city, ushers you in to his drawing room, I suppose, literally and figuratively. And and he sits you down and immediately walks over to a canvas that is blank and starts peering at it and looking over at you almost compulsively and says, uh, yes, yes, you're uh, you're here for the, the job, right? The job that I posted up on the the board that a couple days ago that I think I had to pay like five silver for that kind of thing just to get it posted. But is that you? Uh, yes, I did see a job posting for Bartholomew and I thought I'd drop in and, and see the nature of the, the job. Yes. So, well, I have a rival. His name is, uh, well, his last name is Porter. He works for and owns, I suppose. Uh, I don't know, actually know what kind of business license he has, whether it's like he rents out the space, but Porter's yes. Portraitures is the place that he he owns or at least operates mm. out of. You understand what I mean. That's where he does his business and, you know, presumably yes. maybe owns, owns, uh, does w- whatever. And, well, we are, unfortunately, uh, two sides of the same coin. We, I am a cursed individual in a, a very literal, magical kind of sense. There was a whole rigmarole when I was uh, born. He's actually my brother. So when we were born, we were twins. There was some sort of uh, spell incantation. Actually, if you want, and he's still painting just like manically as yeah. this is all happening. And he's like, oh, actually, if you want, and he leans over and like starts ruffling through some books that are next to him. And if you want, uh, I think I have uh, maybe like a, some some incantations of that kind of stuff that I can kind of explain to you about kind of what happened. And he notices that you don't care. And he, <laughs> Bartholomew, keeps going. He's like, uh, well, so, well, I, I, we, we were twins and uh, someone cast a spell on my mom to create the ultimate artist. And well, he created two great artists. Well, one great artist and a uh, porter. And I like to think that I actually capture the true spirit of what these subjects are. I, you know, you, you can tell, I do not, I do not fuss. I do not, you know, make things look any better. I do not cover Indeed. up any of their horrible You don't things. embellish. Exactly. Well, no, exactly. Exactly. You understand. And I believe so. Yes. And, and Porter, Porter is, is he does not capture truth. What he does is he he flatters people, you know, and that's not art. That's not what art is. And I am sick of it for a lot of reasons. A, just because my brother's kind of a jerk. And B, well, because people like buying his paintings better. And I don't think that that is correct, if I'm being frank, just because I think mine are more reflective of the truth. And so if you could maybe just go over and just just a couple of them, just to, I don't know if it's like a send a message thing and maybe you can actually be a consultant on this. I'm not really sure. But, you know, it's just maybe send a message or like just like destroy all of them. I'm not sure which or you could just like burn the whole mm. thing down. I, you know, I'm not really an expert in, in these sort of events. I had hoped that my silver would also buy me an expert, which is, I guess, presumably, presumably. you. I have dealt with the fair few curses before. I am intrigued by the nature of this spell. You did mention you had some paperwork and or, or scrolls that may explain it more further in depth that I would like to look over, but I shall go over to Porter's forthwith and take a gander and at least begin to scope out the place and and decide how I might 
pursue this further. I do understand your plight, though, Bartholomew, and I I think that your paintings are wonderful. There is something to be said for attention to detail. And he turns around your portrait, which is somehow already done. And it is a <laughs> it is a masterwork if you have any eye for art, but it is not a flattering picture. Every every unconscious worry that you've ever had about yourself is somehow magnified in the eye of Bartholomew. But it is uncanny, and it is indeed a masterpiece. Well, I do appreciate this. Are you going to be hanging this up on the wall, or is this my payment? Uh, Uh, It's a down payment, sort of, in a way. Really, so the curse is that I have to draw these things. I mean, there's a lot of other kind of aspects to the curse Uh. that I guess I could go into, and actually starts listing off like five other bullet points of like, well, here's the subsidiaries and subsections of my curse and has some theories about other ways that the curse manifests itself. But long and story short is that he will still pay you, but you just get this because like he has clearly no room for any more paintings anywhere in his, yes. in his shop. or Your home. walls are quite filled. Yes. Well, Bartholomew, I shall return once I have done a little research and uh, have cased Porter's place out as well. Yes, it has been great meeting you, and I believe I can be of some assistance. Excellent. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk about terms and contracts and that sort of thing. I actually think I have. And then just like, as you are presumably walking out the door, is still talking about (laughs) contracts and other specificities therein. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. I I love that you did the narrating too. Uh, No one has thought to do that yet. They've just kind of role played the character. But I I love it. It's a good little flavor. So, and especially, you know, for audio medium, I I have now just ingrained it in my brain so deeply that like I have to describe. I can't just gesture. I have to tell people what's happening. And also, it's a nice way to like yada yada through some stuff as much as I just blabbed on for four straight minutes. But that's okay. You have painted a picture. Aha. That's the point. <laughs> okay. Next question here comes from one of my patrons. They want to know, yeah, Matthew, he wants to know how you decided to start recording your games. Was it that you played with as friends before and, and decided to start recording or was it kind of a new venture? You, you already touched on this, but yeah, they want to hear kind of the origin yeah. story. And it sounds like you kind of had a false start there too. So yeah, talk <laughs> us through the origins and the current reality that is Reckless Attack. Yeah, so I, I like many kids who liked writing and was told he was a, a smart millennial, always felt like I, I should create something, right? That, that of course I will write the next great American novel or <laughs> be the next great cartoonist or whatever, where whatever I decided to turn my mind to is what I could do. And obviously, with a lot of time, reality, and therapy, I have tampered those expectations to more manageable things. But it was something that I always thought I would enjoy doing. And I had loved D&D, and I loved D&D podcasts so much. So it was always on my radar. But I also knew that I didn't want to do it just to do it. Like, if I was going to do it, I was going to go all in. I was going to, I had to have the right group of people. I had to have high standards. I had to be, I had to feel like I was ready to do it and that I could pour myself into it and treat it as if it was the only shot I was going to get, you know, as if I have, I have one chance to create a, my great podcast, <laughs> whatever that means. And I'm not going to touch it until I, until I get the right people, which I assumed would be probably never. Mm-hmm. And 
then I met the group of folks that I'm playing with and we grew together as a group and it took a lot of time to gel, but there was, it was always kind of there. There was, there was a connection. And towards the end, I started recording some sessions just because I thought it would be kind of an interesting learning experience. And it was a nice way for me to go back and remember what had happened and kind of take notes and learn from, learn from myself and, and, and evolve that way. And I, I just remember listening and being like, wait, this, this is actually like good, maybe. And it was just on a pot, you know, on, a, on an iPhone or something, whatever, years ago. But the content was good. And I quickly realized that if my level of taste from having consumed as much as I had and my high standards for kind of quality for podcast had overcome my natural anxiety and self-doubt to decide, hey, wait a second, this actually is kind of good then I could kind of feel very strangely confident. And I then kind of just broached the topic with a couple members and just said like, hey, what do you think about this? And at least a couple had also been always wanting to do a podcast of some sort, not necessarily a D&D one, but a podcast. And then we asked everyone and then everyone was kind of very quickly just like, yeah, that sounds great. And we just kind of kept picking up steam and the whole group kept just finding things to be interested in and to help with. And we've just like gelled as, as friends and co-creators. And here we are today, basically. Yeah, that is quite the story. And it's great that all of the pieces really fell into place. I I don't want to say, I don't want to cheapen any other of my guests podcast origins, but a lot of people kind of stumble into it, including myself. So it's cool that you have been so intentional from the beginning and I think it reflects in your show's quality and, and kind of the, you. like you said, the thought you've put into it. So that goes well into the next question, which is from the very start, you've been really focused on good audio quality, yeah. which is obviously that's a, a sign that you had been thinking about a podcast for a long time instead of just starting to do it, like I said, like me and like other people. So. <laughs> Did you do a lot of research for this in preparation for making sure that your audio quality was good? And why did you decide to focus on the yeah. audio quality specifically when you started the show? Yeah. So first easiest answer is we did a lot of research on making audio great. And specifically, my players, David and Jonathan, really spearheaded it, and David especially, of finding the the best mics for the right price point and you know, figuring out ways where we could arrange mics, you know, in a good audio setup in their extra room and putting up pads and learning all the weird Reaper plugins that we would need, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so I definitely had a lot of ideas of what I liked and what I didn't like. But when it came to the, you know, rubber meeting the road of like, okay, how do we get there? That was all them. And they worked tirelessly and still are working tirelessly to just like get that extra few drops of water out of out of every rock of an episode. <laughs> but then kind of the other side of the question is, is I had listened to so many podcasts over the years, and I knew just only from my own experience, how quickly you can lose a listener, and how much of that comes down to audio. If it just if you can't understand people, or it's distracting, or it's buzzy, or it's just not pleasant, that can be enough you know, you catch someone on the wrong day or even on the right day, that's enough for people to be like, I got other options. And yeah. 
there are so many points, especially because, you know, we have no star power. As much as we don't like to say it in our marketing copy, we are just people, right? We're friends at a table and that's our, you know, what we want. That's our vibe, but we don't have any stars to bring people in and keep them listening to see what happens. We have such a small margin for error that we wanted to make sure that audio, which is the one, one of the things that we could control, not whether they liked our personalities or our voices or the story or the characters, the thing that we could control was audio. And so we had to make sure that that at least was not going to be the reason someone turned us off. Yeah, that is a lesson that a lot of us are still learning. I, I've definitely tried to improve my audio quality over the past year. And like you said, from a listener standpoint, there's nothing that makes me turn off something quicker than distracting audio. So it is it is important to kind of yeah. keep and maintain that, that audience. Yeah. All right. So the world that you are playing in in Reckless Rixia. Attack. Yeah. Did you, have you been planning it for a while? Did you build it for a previous game and then you repurpose it? And, you know, what is the role of your players in helping you build the world Yeah, at the beginning of the show and also episode to episode? So we, we decided early on, I had created a world for our prior campaign, uh, a little piecemeal, just because our game went from like, okay, let's do a quick one shot and just see if we all like each other to like, oh, we're playing together every week for the next three years. So it was very much, you know, build as we went, but we decided not to repurpose that world because we didn't want there to be any inside jokes or inside knowledge that Mm. the players would have that the listeners wouldn't. We probably were good enough role players and conscious enough that we could have avoided it. But like, let's just start anew. Let's do something thematic. Let's do something fresh. I love that. It's one of the things that I think Critical Role in Campaign 1 didn't like they didn't think about it but it's it's no, right like when you start it you're like trying to catch up to where they are and it takes like a ton of episodes to kind of figure out what's going on i remember hearing the phrase vox machina and having no yeah. idea what it <laughs> yeah. meant until finally like i put together the context clues and they were calling themselves that and i was like oh this isn't like something they're looking for because i translated it in my head i was like the voice of the machine i guess yeah I don't right know. yeah but like yeah it, it's true it's it's exactly. a it's a real thing that if you were if you were trying to get you know if you throw your players in like every table has all of these weird inside jokes and it would be hard to jump in the middle of it and understand what's going on so i love that that it was a conscious choice yeah and again we we're still very guilty of it many times but yeah. for the most part you know we we've cut it out and we hope that now it is a part of the charm as opposed to you know that we bring people into our inside jokes and knowledge as opposed to uh, <laughs> have to halt the podcast and explain it or right. just barrel forward and not even notice. So as a student of Matthew Colville in some and many matters, I came up with a big pitch document for the podcast. And I, uh-huh. I literally think I had like 10 campaign ideas that I felt like, oh, okay, this is all different and thematic enough that I could run a campaign from any of this. And we, we talked about it, we honed in, we honed in, and we came up with what we thought was a really cool campaign, which was essentially fantasy Star Trek more or less, that the party would be part of essentially the Federation. And there would be these portals jump, you know, opening up all over the world. And no one knew where they would go. Some of them were one way. And they were kind of the intrepid adventurers who were going in and seeing what was on the other side of these portals. And, you know, sometimes that would be 
you know, horrible creatures. Sometimes it would be new civilizations that they could make contact with. And sometimes they would be helping these people with their problems, which was really cool. But we put a pause on it. I started thinking through it some more. And I realized that D&D was not the system for that. It's combat, right? Like, there's not a lot of mechanics. There's enough mechanics, at least for the games that, that I often run for role-playing and conflict resolution, that kind of stuff. But like, at the end of the day, if you're not killing monsters, maybe D&D is not the game you should be playing. And it, you know, and so like it was really limiting in stories that I could tell and even more so could be very colonial and very like, ah, we can come into your society and help you solve all your problems. And it's like, ha, ah, that's tough. And also yeah. if I'm traveling around to different parts of the world, then like, am I going to be coming up with whole new fantasy cities and respectful depictions of culture? Or am I going to either copy paste the same thing over and over or essentially create oriental adventures but in the reckless attack podcast and the answer was like uh i don't know and the fact that i don't know means i probably shouldn't do this so i went back i talked to the group they totally understood and were on the same page and then i tried and tried to come up with the next thing or the next iteration and i hit a wall i just couldn't do it i was you know like having to start from ground zero and we ended up playing a game of Microscope. I don't know if you've ever played Microscope, and I can't remember if it's been talked about on here or not. It has been talked about. I hadn't played it yet, but yeah. It's great. It's a long story short, it's a world building game. It's very collaborative. It's there's no DM, and it is just as simple as everyone's ideas are valid. And so we just kind of went around and we just threw all kinds of crazy stuff at the wall. And some of it was so freaking cool that it just got all these things firing in my brain. And I said, cool, thank you all so much. I'm going to take all of this information. I'm going to pluck out the bits that I like, forget all of it, and then I'm going to change all of it, and I'm going to run from there. Even from the beginning, it was very collaborative. I took a lot of ideas from people. I took a lot of kind of tones from people, came up with the adventure setting that we're in now. And even now, I really try to make it a point to let the players continue to world build session to session and in between sessions where, you know, I'll ask them like, oh, hey, you know, beyond, hey, where are you from and what's it like? But like, I don't know, what kind of gods might this person worship? Or like, I don't know, what's a cool place in this city that you think would be there? And then we just kind of role play from there. So I try to make it as much of a cooperative and equal building process as much as possible. So... If you were to go back and start a show from scratch again, what specific things would you change? What would you keep the same? And what advice would you give to people who are doing that? Who are thinking about starting a show? Yeah. More backlog, first and foremost. <laughs> we had a good amount. And then we blew through all of it, as one does. So we had a good number of banked. We should have had another couple weeks banked, I think. We had to scramble once or twice to make sure. And really, the only other thing is, I feel like I would have hit a couple of world building things and the kind of pacing up a little bit more on our first arc. But on yeah. the other hand, I really loved how it came out and a lot of other people did too. And it was very flavorful and memorable. And so like, I kind of also don't want to change it. So really, it's just like back end, make sure that no one is stressed and everyone is focusing on having fun and editing at their own pace and have more backlog, push back their launch date another month. <laughs> and it'll be fine yeah that's great advice 
So what are kind of your future goals for Reckless Attack? And do you have other projects in mind that you're thinking of tackling as well? Yeah. So goals for Reckless Attack in a first and foremost is definitely keep it sustainable. You know, we've been going for almost six months now, depending on when this airs, six months exactly, whatever. Yeah. Um, Start in October. Yeah. Perfect. And so we want to keep it. We want to make sure that we can keep doing it. You know, we don't want to overload ourselves. We don't overextend. That's like a classic issue of all kind of people starting out into the space or having a Kickstarter. And it's like, cool, we have 50 new stretch goals. And like, oh, God, we have so much work now. We want to make sure that we can keep doing what we're doing and not just collapse upon it. And we also, you know, as much as we want to keep growing, that's great. But also we want to make sure that we're still playing our game for our table and are making sure that we're making choices for us and what is best for us, not necessarily playing to an audience or you know, trying to be funny or trying to be dramatic. We're just doing what feels natural because I think that people connect to it that way and there's a lot of authenticity there. And then we just want to make sure that we're being a, you know, always a better platform for other creators. We recently started an interview series with tabletop role-playing game personalities and creators and podcasters and streamers. And, you know, we're really excited to get to spotlight people on our platform as much as possible. You know, we're looking for ways to eventually get guest people in, if not to our main podcast, to some avenue. But that's still all, again, very, very baby nascent dreams because we have to do that first thing I said, keeping it sustainable first. But yeah, so so those are kind of the main tentpole things is, again, we want to keep growing, but we want to do it in a way that we're still comfortable with. And we want to do it by playing the game that we want to be playing. Yeah. So you've talked about having a pitch deck and having a bunch of kind of really intentional steps to creating the show. As far as promotion of the show, yeah. what do you feel like are, what has been the most effective? And then what advice do you have for people who are trying to promote their own work, be it podcasts or anything else? What's you know the best way to message it and to put it out there and really be proud of it? Yeah. I mean, first and foremost is definitely sustainability, right? It how you like it doesn't matter like if you promote it, if you're the best promoter in the world and you burn out so much that you can't create the thing that you're promoting, then <laughs> it doesn't really matter. But first, you know, truly first is you have to start with positivity about yourself and about your project. You have to it's again, like I said, it's so easy for people to discount your stuff. There's so much content out there. There's so many podcasts out there, streams and games and whatever. And you can't be the first one to undercut yourself. You have to start from a position of positivity, of enthusiasm. Mm. You have to celebrate what makes you unique and interesting. You're not just a, you know, a 5e podcast. You're not just a bunch of a bunch of idiots around the table who are friends and decided to throw an iPhone in the middle of the table. You are a group who wants your audience to feel like they're playing games with friends. That's what that's our thing. Or you are, you know, semi-professional voice actors, or you are whatever, whatever you, whatever gets you guys excited about your game, someone else is going to be excited about it too. Yeah. And that's what you got to hit. And part of that is being authentic, being truthful and talking about that, setting expectations and delivering on them, and really just also agreeing on who you are internally so you can tell people externally, hey, here's who we are. And then it's just about boiling it down and catching eyeballs. You know, you only have so much time in Twitter feeds, in your podcast, in whatever to get someone interested in hitting play or hitting download or whatever. And so you need to make sure that without being too clickbaity, you are maximizing every single letter that you're able to with personality 
and honesty and enthusiasm and fun while giving a real example of like, hey, here's who we are. If you like this, you will like the rest of our stuff. Come on in. I love it. Yeah, I think the you mentioned the a really important part is to talk about what makes you different and yeah. interesting and then also not be the first one to undercut yourself. Those are three very key things for me as well when when I'm trying to think about what I want to say. So yeah, I love it. And it's not even what makes you different in the negative sense either. Right. That is complicated and is often not effective. If you're starting from a place of negativity and saying like, oh, well, you know, we're fixing this game or like, we're not like this popular podcast. We're this. Don't need to do that. That's unnecessarily confrontational, whatever. You can just say, hey, Okay, we are, we're not critical role. You don't put that in your promo, but what you say is like, okay, cool. What we actually are is we're friends. We want you to feel like you're friends at a table with us and we want it to be blah, blah, blah. And you find it ways to make it positive and make it about you instead of about someone else. Yeah, great point. It's like a political campaign. Don't be the first one to go negative. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it reminds me of. Okay, so if you had to give advice to people who, are looking to run games or who are running games, mm -hmm. you know, what, what are some of the, the most crucial pieces of advice that you've gotten from all of the different places you've uh, gotten it from that you feel like will really help them take their games to the next level? Well, we talked about it a little bit, but trusting yourself, trusting your players and talking to your players, making sure everyone's on the same page and that things are going the right direction means everyone's happier and happier people make better games. Yeah, But also on the kind of the DM side of thing is take your big swings. Use mm. your coolest ideas. Don't save them till later. You'll come up, trust that you'll come up with more cooler ideas or that your players will come up with ideas that you can run with. Don't hoard your ideas. You never know what chance, what opportunity you're going to get next. Try to make every moment you can memorable and exciting and something to be engaged with by your players and more more content will come. <laughs> I love it. That's great advice. All right. So you mentioned you've started an interview show as well yes. as your regular podcast. So yeah, talk, talk to us about where people can find your work, what projects you're working on, and then anything that you can tell us about coming up in the future, if there are things you, you can give us some information about. Yes, indeed. So First of all, we are Reckless Attack. We're a 5e podcast. We release every single Tuesday. And uh, we're not like the other 5e podcasts. We have frogs. and But we emphasize a lot of collaboration, a lot of friendship, a lot of just kind of joking around, but in a way that is inclusive and is not inside jokey and is focused on, on playing the game and is just tries to be positive and nice while also being horrific. But also there's cute frogs and donkey babies and such going on. But if you want to learn more about us, other than finding us wherever podcasts are found and on YouTube, where we post a bunch of clips, reckless underscore attack at Twitter. We are on there all the time. That's where all of the most exciting announcements are made or reckless attack podcast on Instagram. Recklessattack.com is also great. We just started up a Twitch account, which is at reckless attack studios. We haven't streamed anything yet, but we have some we have some tentative plans that are brewing around that. We have an April Fool's episode coming up soon, which is very fun. Ooh. All kinds of great stuff ahead. But mostly, we'll just be playing our game, having a great time, and hoping that you guys all come along for the ride and join us at our table. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Nathan. And I've really enjoyed chatting about some of the, the specific things that 
you've got experience with that I feel like uh, a lot of people will find interesting. So Hope yeah, so. Uh, it, it's been fun uh, watching your show grow as well. And I've really enjoyed interacting with you too. So Thank it's, you. it's good to chat face to face and uh, learn from you. Yes, same. It's I've always loved uh, listening to your show and it was a real, real treat to be here and talk to you. Thank you for listening to How Not to DM. Now it's time for a sneak peek into next week's guest, Dungeon Maestro Kyle of the Bombarded podcast. Russ Moore from Dungeons and Dragons. He's a lot of fun to play with. I've been guesting on his show quite mm. a bit recently as a, a as a protagonist. Oh, no, antagonist. That's the right word. So, you know, getting to getting to see how he DMs and how all of them kind of run their table. It's it's just like a little bit of a smorgasbord. I'm like, I want a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's like the golden corral of DMs. <laughs> I love it. But really, really good. Really good food. Yeah, yeah. It's like a Vegas buffet of DMs. <laughs> yes, yes. All you can eat, and it's great. Yeah, or Texas barbecue. Hey, now we're talking. Now we're talking. To hear more about Kyle's influences, how Bombarded came to be, and much more, tune in next week. Bombarded's season finale drops Tuesday, April 5th, the day before Kyle's interview. So be sure to listen to that and then come hear all about how Kyle got started playing D&D on Wednesday. Next time you get the chance, share this episode with your friends and family around your gaming table. Another great way to help boost the show is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or rating the show on Spotify. I appreciate all of you for helping me grow. Thank you to the team at T4C Studios for helping with the editing and production of this episode. My new intro and outro music is by Daniel Zombo. The Quickfire Chaos music is by Exacat. And the Quickfire Chaos mood music is by Arcane Anthems. Check out the episode notes for more of their great work. And, as always, until next time, roll some Nat 20s for me.